Hello. Well, today's message is all about bread. One of the things that's happened in lockdown, certainly in the early days, was that everybody started baking furiously um, because of the not being able to get to the shop so readily. And there was this huge flour crisis. You couldn't get flour for love nor money. Um, people got into all kinds of creative baking. Huge amount of people got into making sourdough bread. This is a, a sourdough loaf, which I made earlier today. Not just a Corona loaf, but something I've been doing for years. I've had the uh, starter for this sourdough going for the last 11 years, I think it is now. So I'm not a Johnny come Corona lately. I've been committed to sourdough for a long time. But uh, bread is important. Bread used to be called the staff of life. It's the, the thing on which life depended in our uh, modern era, bread seems to have got a lot more complex than that, not only flour shortages during corona, but all the issues with allergies and gluten-free and all the rest, bread seems to have become complex. But bread is what it's all about today, and bread is absolutely central to our Christian faith. Our normal Christian service is that we eat together. That's what we normally do. We, as Christians, as members of, certainly as members of Gateway Church, we spend a lot of time eating together. It's been such a weird season to have these three months of not being in other people's houses, eating with them, and not having people in my house eating with me. It's just such a normal, natural part of life. And more than that, when we gather as Christians together on a Sunday as we normally would, we would normally eat as part of that service as well. We would normally come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'd take the bread and the wine together and at the moment we're starved we're starved of that kind of social interaction and we're starved of eating the bread and the wine celebrating the lord's supper celebrating lord the the, the communion together it's a strange and a difficult time and what i want us to see today is that bread is important, to see why bread is important, why it is that we're called to eat it, and for us to see that Jesus is the true and better bread. I want us to sharpen our hunger. I want us to be hungry to lay hold of this bread and to eat it. We're going to be in John chapter 6 today, which is a long chapter, so we're not going to read it all, take different parts from it. And the action of this story all happens around the Sea of Galilee. This was a, a large lake, and uh, there's lots of movement in this story, but it all happens around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples and crowd following him, crossing backwards and forwards. It begins with two miracles and with 5,000 people following Jesus. And then it ends with Peter's great confession of faith, saying to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, but only 11 disciples left. Let's read the beginning of this story. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? 
Now the story begins with a practical problem. There's a big crowd and there's a lack of catering facilities to satisfy their hunger. And, and mass catering is complex at the best of times. I've had some involvement because of what I do, being a pastor of a church that involves feeding people. So either indirectly uh, as others have organized it or sometimes myself more directly feeding large crowds of people. I understand something of the complexity and challenge and also the stress that can come from trying to feed a large crowd of people and if you have a large crowd of people who get hungry that crowd can also get ugly and so this was a problem that was facing Jesus and the disciples a problem that seemed irresolvable there were no shops around there are far too many people to feed and as one of the disciples points out helpfully it would have cost way too much money to feed them even if there had been shops available from which to buy some food but Jesus knows what he is going to do. What Jesus is going to do is going to make a little boy and his picnic famous forever. What Jesus does is to take five small loaves and two small fish. And we should note the emphasis there. These are small loaves. It's not loaves like my magnificent sourdough bread. I'm sure it's just kind of small, mean little rolls and two small fish. And those five small loaves and two small fish become food for the multitude. Jesus gives thanks, he blesses it, and suddenly what is nothing becomes more than enough to feed 5,000 people. And the full stomachs of that crowd lead to them having some revolutionary thoughts. This is what it says. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The crowd wants to make Jesus king, but he's not ready and willing for that to happen. And instead he retreats up into a mountain to be alone. And for what we know about Jesus, we can imagine that he's gone there to commune with his father in heaven. And in this, we see we're not dealing with an ordinary politician here. Jesus isn't just about attracting as many followers as he can and then having them uh, uh, say, acclaim him as, as Lord, as King, as ruler, as Caesar. No, that's not what Jesus is about. But that's our first miracle in this story. Second miracle follows on after it, and it's the story of Jesus walking on the water. Jesus has left the crowd. He's gone up into the mountain to be alone and not to be made king by them. The disciples then get into a boat and they leave the crowd as well. And then there's a storm as they are in the boat. And then suddenly they see Jesus walking to them on the water. It's an extraordinary story. It's actually one of those stories that perhaps causes people who aren't yet followers of Christ the most kind of stumbling because it sounds so unlikely, so unworldly. How could a man walk on water? Do you really believe that? It's a, a story that raises all kinds of questions. And it's a big story, but actually it's not the main point. It's not the main part of this story. It's, it's not the main part of the story of John chapter 6. It's not the main part of what we're looking at today because actually this story is primarily about bread. Let's read some more of that story. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realised that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. 
Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Now what we have in this scene is somewhat chaotic, actually somewhat farcical. You can kind of imagine it as a movie being played out in, in, a, in a comedic way that Jesus has done this amazing miracle. He's fed all these people out of nothing. People want to make him king. He kind of runs away and hides. They won't. The disciples are left to look after the crowd. What's the deal there, Jesus? The disciples often think, thanks, we're not so keen on this deal. They get in a boat and they run away. And then the people, when they realize that Jesus and the disciples have all left, they try and find a way to get back and find Jesus. They hop on some boats and go off looking for him. It's all a bit chaotic, all a bit farcical. What they're doing is saying, look, where's the bread provider? We've got some questions. This guy has fed us. We've got some questions. We want some answers. And as the story unfolds, we see the scene of the action switches. It begins with Jesus teaching on a hillside, and then the action switches to boats and water. And then we get into the longest section, actually, of the story, which is not as dramatic pictorially as the mountainside or the boats and the lake. We get to a synagogue in a town called Capernaum and Jesus teaching there. And even in the way the story is told by John, we get this sense of the crowd shrinking down. There have been 5,000 on the hillside to hear Jesus teach and be fed by him. And then uh, some of them get into boats. And it can't have been the whole 5,000 who got into the boats because... There couldn't possibly have been enough space in the boats of 5,000 people. And then we see Jesus teaching in the synagogue, and synagogues generally weren't very big. And so we can imagine that by this stage, there are perhaps scores rather than hundreds, certainly rather than thousands of people who are still pursuing him and listening to what he has to say. The crowd's thinning down, but the story's still the same. It's all about bread. Let's read some more of that story. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What we have in this part of the story is a dialogue, a conversation between Jesus and the remaining 
crowd, and it revolves, revolves around a fundamental question. We're hungry, can you feed us? And that's a physical hunger. They were glad to have been fed physically on the mountainside, but you also get a sense of spiritual hunger, of uh, all kinds of social, political hungers. This was an oppressed people. They were uh, lords over by a colonizing power that wants to make Jesus king. So there's, there's various hungers that this crowd is experiencing and articulating. And they're saying to themselves, look, he's given us miraculous bread. There wasn't anything to eat on the mountainside. He took some small barley loaves and a couple of fish and he made enough food for all of us to eat with loads left over besides. This man, this Jesus, feels a little bit like Moses, the great rescuer, the great deliverer who freed our people from Egyptian slavery all those centuries before. Could this man, could Jesus be our deliverer now? And they find Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum and they ask him an honest question. What must we do to do the work of God? It's a good question to ask. It might be that you're not a follower of Jesus. You're watching this this morning and uh, maybe not even sure who God is, but you're saying to yourself, what must I do to do the work of God? What must I do in order to be right with God? Maybe you've got a sense of, of the presence of God, the reality of God, but you're not sure how to connect with him. And you're thinking, what do I need to do? But what Jesus does is to turn the question around, which he does again and again throughout the Gospel of John. Verse 28, what must we do to do the work of God? Verse 29, Jesus replies, the work of God is this, believe in the one that he has sent. What Jesus does there is to show that if we think it's down to us to do this work, we're starting in completely the wrong place. What Jesus actually does here is to cut the legs out from all moralistic, self-saving, religious efforts. It's not the work that you do which is going to get you to God. Rather, it's the work that God is doing in you. And what you have to do, all you have to do in response is to believe. Believe in the one that he has sent. Believe in Jesus. Believe in this true and better Bread. Now, there's a significant upping of the stakes here because actually what's happened, it's gone from the crowd saying, this man's fed us. Perhaps that means he could be a Moses-like leader who can rescue us to Jesus saying, no, you need to believe me, believe in me as one who has been sent from heaven by God. That's what you need to believe. That's a significant upping of the stakes. And so the people ask him next question, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do so that we can trust you? And it all comes back to bread again. You see, Moses, the great deliverer, the great rescuer of the people of Israel, he had led the people out of slavery and death in Egypt, led them into the promised land. But for 40 years, they'd lived in the wilderness between Egypt and between the promised land. And during that time, they'd been fed with bread from heaven, manna, which had appeared miraculously on the ground every day. And we're told uh, that this was like a sweet tasting kind of meal, which they would gather each day. And so for 40 years, Moses fed them with heavenly bread. Jesus has done an amazing miracle, but all he's done in comparison to Moses is produce a bunch of barley bread and fish. And I mean, barley bread is horrible, disgusting stuff. It's poor man's food. It's not nearly as good as bread made from wheat. It would have been 
rough and, and dry and hard. It would have been nothing like my sourdough loaf. It would have been pretty disgusting stuff. Jesus, yes, you multiplied barley loaves and gave us lunch, but Moses fed us with heavenly bread for 40 years. So we want to see some Moses-sized miracle here if we're going to put our trust in you. And Jesus doesn't give them the answer they want once again. You might expect Jesus to say, okay, you want a Moses-sized miracle? He gave you manna from heaven, bread from heaven. Right, I'm going to rain down croissants from heaven for you, and then you can see who I really am. But Jesus doesn't do that. What Jesus does, in effect, is to say, you don't need new and better manna to prove my authenticity. What you're looking for, what you're looking for, the, all the proof you need is right in front of you, the one who is talking to you, I am the bread of life. Jesus points it all back at himself. He says, I'm all that you need. That's an extraordinary claim. It's an extraordinary claim for us today, even now, to look to Jesus and to believe what he says, that he is all that we need. We don't need Jesus plus anything. We just need Jesus. He's the bread of life. He's the one who is able to feed us. And this statement, this claim of Jesus, sets the people grumbling. And Jesus keeps pushing them. He keeps making this claim. I am. I am the bread of life. And he makes it increasingly personal and actually increasingly graphic and he makes them increasingly uncomfortable and you know Jesus can do that Jesus can make us very uncomfortable if you've never been made uncomfortable by Jesus perhaps you haven't got close enough to him this is what happens next Jesus said to them very truly I tell you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In our society today, there's a huge focus upon food. Think about the number of celebrity chefs that are on TV. Think about how often restaurant reviews feature in newspapers, magazines, online. Think about how often interviews of celebrities focus around what they're eating, what diet they're on, or what restaurants they've been to, or what their favorite food is. And what Jesus really is doing here he, is he's saying, look, I am the ultimate meal. I am the best restaurant. I'm the diet. I'm the food that you Need. And this is a difficult word for the people he's speaking to to receive. How do you eat this man? What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And Jesus makes this really graphic and actually quite 
offensive. The word he uses in verse 54 about eating is uh, the Greek word trogon, which is a word that was used to describe the sound of animals chomping on their food. If you've ever got close to a cow when it's eating grass or straw, you'll know what that chomping sound is like. And Jesus is saying to these people, you need to feed on me, you need to chomp on me. If you want real life, real bread, you need to chomp on me. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) One thing it means is that being spiritual isn't enough. People often say that kind of stuff, don't they? You often hear that in those celebrity interviews as they talk about their favorite restaurants and their favorite food and what diet they're on at the moment. And they talk about, oh, I'm a very spiritual person. And it sounds very beautiful and very grand. Actually, it's completely hollow and vain and vacuous and, and, and empty. It doesn't mean anything. I'm a very spiritual person. What does that mean? It means nothing. Ironically, Jesus points out here, if you make that kind of claim, actually, you're not being spiritual at all. You're being fleshly. What you're doing is trying to do it your way. And we shouldn't do it our way. We need to do it his way. We need to do it God's way. What Jesus does is to make the spiritual physical. He makes the subjective objective. As John tells us at the beginning of the gospel, the words became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus says that we need to feed on him because he doesn't only want us to hear him, he also wants us to touch him. He wants us to be in that close physical proximity to him. Our trusting in him needs to be not only of our souls but also of our bodies. The entire us, the entire me needs to put our trust in God. What Jesus is doing here as he says you need to feed on me is he's he's humanizing this, he's personalizing it. You need to get close to Jesus. Now what Jesus says here connects more easily for us probably than it did for his first hearers because we're used to the understanding, to the practice of communion, the Lord's Supper, taking the bread and the wine. And when Jesus talks about you need to feed on me, eat my body, drink my blood, then those of us who are Christians and are used to taking the bread and the wine, I guess almost automatically our thoughts will turn to the bread and to the wine, to the elements of the communion, to the Lord's Supper. But what he said about you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, it must have sounded so weird to those first hearers who really didn't grasp what he was talking about. Now, it's three months nearly since we last ate and drank. It's nearly three months since we last celebrated communion together at Gateway. It's been a a long season of spiritual anorexia. We've been starved of feeding on Christ in the way that we normally would. The coronavirus is a physical health issue, obviously, but it's also precipitated a spiritual health issue. It, or the restrictions the government have put on us at least, have prevented us from feeding in the way that we normally would from taking the bread and the wine as we normally would and as we regularly should. Last week, we again saw the uh, disagreements at the highest level about the virus and how to handle it. One day, an interview with an epidemiologist from Imperial College saying lockdown should have been imposed much earlier and should have been much stricter. Next day, interview with an epidemiologist from Oxford saying lockdown is farcical, it should never have been imposed and should be lifted straight away. 
What do you do? Who do you believe? What we do know is that we are meant to feed on Jesus. Chomping down on the bread and the wine is meant to be part of our regular worship. It's the way we enact what Jesus teaches us here. Every time we come to the communion table, every time we come and we take the loaf and we break it together and we take the cup and we drink the wine together, every time we do that, we're making a fresh commitment. We're making a recommitment to Jesus. We're saying, yes, we believe that you are the bread, that your blood was shed on the cross for us. Again, we are entrusting ourselves to Jesus. We're saying, yes, we believe in you. We believe your sacrifice was sufficient for us. We believe that you died on the cross and carried our sins. And in you, we can trust. And you will raise us to everlasting life. Because, Jesus, you promised that you're the bread of, the li- the bread of life. And you promised us eternal life when we believe in you. And you know, the thing about well, one of the things about this, normally when we gather and we take the bread and the wine, is that even if the preacher has been lousy, the gospel is still declared as we take the bread and the wine together. If the words haven't amounted to much, as we come to the bread and the wine, we are again reminded of the truth and the power of the gospel. Jesus is our bread. He's the one on whom we feed. Jesus is the one whose blood was shed for us that we might be brought into relationship with God. The bread and the wine preach the gospel week by week as we take them together. We experience Christ's presence, yes, as the word is preached, and as we take the bread and the wine. And we respond in faith by doing this. Week by week as we hear the word of God taught, we then say, yes, I'm coming to you, Jesus, in response to that word. I'm coming to feed and drink on you again. Think about that story we're told in the Gospel of Luke about how after Jesus had died and then risen again before he'd revealed himself to all his disciples, he suddenly appears walking on the road to Emmaus where two of his, uh, his followers are walking along and he walks with them and talks with them and at first they don't recognize him and then when they do recognize him, what they say was the words of Jesus that caused their hearts to burn and it was as he took the bread and broke it, their eyes were opened so they could see him. It's the words of Jesus and the body of Jesus which shows us Jesus. And so we're meant to come. We're meant to hear the word of God preached and we're meant to come and take the bread and the wine because that's when our hearts and our eyes are open to see and to know Jesus. And so we should, we should feel real hunger in these days. It's great that we can do what we're doing. I'm grateful again for the technology. I'm great that, grateful that so many church members and people from beyond the church are watching what we're doing online but what I'm doing now isn't really preaching it's to a camera you're not in the room with me I can't look you in the eye and we can't dialogue we can't talk we can't have that sense of how God is working amongst us as we normally would and we can't break bread and wine together we can't sit and eat together and there's a hunger and a cost about that and we should lament that all that we're missing all that we're starving of at this time. This meal unites us as Christians, but it also divides. And as Jesus declares himself to be the bread, the bread of life, he is forcing people to make a decision about him. That's what we see next. 
From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. At the start of our story, there were 5,000 people sitting on a mountainside, hearing Jesus and being fed by him. Now we're down just to 12, to the 12 disciples, and even one of them is going to turn and betray Jesus. So really we're down just to 11. And this doesn't seem very encouraging, 5,000 down to 11. The story starts with the people wanting to make Jesus king. Jesus doesn't allow them. Now he's down to 11 followers. It seems a very strange way of doing things, Jesus. It might even worry you. As we see this, this shrinking crowd, you might even think, how do I know I'm included? If, it's, if this crowd has gone from 5,000 to 11, how can I be sure that I'm included? Now, while the crowds do desert Jesus, we see in what Jesus says here, he's confident that many will follow him. Verse 37, he says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. And then Peter's confession are really the first fruits of that. Jesus, Peter speaks to Jesus and says, you have the words of eternal life. And you know, that is the testimony of the ages Countless millions of people who have taken the bread and taken the wine and said, yes, I believe. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You are the bread of life. I'm going to feed myself on you. This belief and response to Jesus is what unites us, whether you're a lockdown skeptic or a social distancing maximizer, whether you're old or whether you're young, whether you're black or whether you're white, what unites us is our belief in Jesus. He has the words of eternal life. He is the bread of life. Now, we can't come together and take the bread and the wine as I'd love us to, as we normally would, as we should. But we can express our belief in Jesus together. And so I'd like us to, to, to use the ancient words of the creed, words which Christians from every corner of uh, the earth have affirmed together for millennia now. Let's express our belief in Jesus together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.